Welcome to But Jesus Drank Wine and other stories that kept us stuck. I'm Mead. And I'm Christy. In this podcast, we'll explore the stories that kept us, well, stuck, wanting to drink and not wanting to drink all at the same time. Join us as we show you that freedom from alcohol does not have to mean a life sentence of misery and missing out, but actually means living an authentic life full of peace, joy, and purpose. Hi, friends. How are you? Good morning. Well, good morning. How are you? We are so excited to welcome Eric Fredrickson today to the pod. I found Eric on Instagram and I was just really, really excited because anytime we find other believers in this space, we get really excited. <laughs> so I reached out and I was like, please come talk to us. Eric is based in Southwest Florida. He's a follower of Jesus, a husband, father of three kiddos. He has been a recovery advocate for 14 years and a coach for nine and his book comes out next week, which is so exciting. It's called Recovering Reality, Freedom from the Torment of Addiction. Welcome, Eric. Thanks for being here. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. Always fun to have conversations about this. The more conversations about this, the better. People need to hear them. Yeah, so true. We love highlighting different stories because part of what we what we hope that listeners walk away from is hearing themselves or parts of themselves in someone's story. Cause that really is that time that creates that tiny opening of hope for being able to kind of do this work and start this journey. And so I'm especially excited when we get to have a chance to hear someone's story. And especially as someone as a follower of Jesus, where those two things kind of intersect. I heard someone say one time that stories are sticky and I, I couldn't agree more. There's there's something about being able to find yourself in someone else's story when they're mm-hmm. talking about what what worked in their journey. <laughs> because addiction's a very broad topic. So is recovery. There's a lot of different ways to to get yourself in the space of recovery. But I think stories are one of the most powerful avenues to impart hope to to people. Yeah. Storytellers by nature, right? And as humans. And so, yeah, connecting on that level first. So, yeah, we'd love to just offer you the chance to, how did you get here to where you're, you know, you've been a recovery coach for nine years and recovery advocate. Take us back wherever you want to jump in. It's a long story. I tell it all (laughs) in my book. You guys can, everyone can get it next week. No. (laughs) We'll link it Um, in the show notes. Don't worry. (laughs) I I appreciate that. Not, you know, so, I mean, you know, quickly, I was, I was raised in a very religious home. My family's all Mormon, very, very Mormon. It didn't really sit well with me, even at a young age, just the, you have to do this and you have to do that. And if you don't do this, and uh, I just didn't like it all that much. Still have a lot of respect for it. Great relationships with my family, but it didn't, didn't sit well with me. We moved to, to Utah from California when I was 10. And by the age of 13, uh, I was rebelling against everything and drugs and alcohol just found their way into my life pretty quick. I was already kind of drinking and, and, and smoking weed and everything. And then an issue with the root canal of all things got me some painkillers and mm. that, that changed the story very quickly and sped things up real quickly. And man, it was just a long, dark road, just a long, dark road. You know, I've had people ask me like, so Utah, really? There's drugs in Utah? (laughs) When I was there, it was actually in the top, when when I was living in my madness there all those years, it was actually in the top five for overdoses per capita for like multiple years running. So it was just as bad or worse than anywhere in the entire country. I think it's gotten a little better, but I think it's still in like the top 12. I mean, this unbelievable amount of drugs and, and heroin there. With all the people I've worked with, my own story, listening to people's stories, when, when you're young, most often the hooks are in before you even realize what's going on. Mm-hmm. Like you don't even know. I'm, I'm, now there's a lot more education and conversation about it for sure, which is Good, but I mean, that education and conversation doesn't seem to be making a dent in the numbers, how many people are getting sucked into this. But uh, all of a sudden, I was just 
drinking, smoking every day and, you know, emptying out people's medicine cabinets is every chance I got. And it just, it's just crazy. Gosh, just my friends started dropping like flies, overdosing on, uh, this was before heroin really, you know, if, if, have either of you read the book Dreamland? It's a fantastic book. Sam Keones, he's a, I think he was a, a Los Angeles Times reporter and broke away from that. And he's, he just released a second book now talking about fentanyl and uh, methamphetamine problem in America. But the first book was about the uh, opioid um, epidemic. And he talked about how the, the cartels, uh, as evil as they are, they're not stupid. And what they did is they would go around to the, they, they, would, they would go to cities where there was the biggest problems and they would go specifically to like the methadone clinics. They would go mm. specifically to these places and they, they saw the opportunity with, you know, Oxycontin just exploded. And so they, they would specifically go to the places where people get help and give them free black tar heroin and oh they did it all over the country. He, he documents it all in his book and it's exactly what he mentioned. He talks about Utah in the book, actually. It's exactly what happened. And just it's it's crazy you just get sucked into this whirlwind of of death mm. and bef- you blink your eyes and all of a sudden like you can't even get out of it and every person you're around is and it's it's no longer let's let's have a fun party on friday or saturday night it's no longer that now it's it's changed dramatically I just, I lived in the middle of that insanity from the age of 13 to 26. Oh my gosh. And I remember at the end, maybe, you know, I'm sure there's some listeners that can relate. Maybe, you know, you ladies can too. When, when I hit rock bottom, as it's called, which anyone listening, you don't have to hit rock bottom. It's a lie. You don't have to. Rock bottom is very simple. It's wherever you decide to put the shovel down. <laughs> it could be a one-foot hole or a 100-foot hole. It's your choice. <laughs> um, when I hit it, though, I was, I was drinking myself to death in a, in a little no-name town in southern Utah just simply because I didn't have the energy or really want to go out and even try and find drugs. And alcohol is a drug anyway, so <laughs> it was just the easiest to get. My external circumstances had been worse on multiple occasions you know, overdose or wake up in jail, not know how you got there. Just all sorts of different, my external circumstances have been much, much worse, but internally it had never been worse. It was as bad as bad could be. And I reached out to my, my parents and they agreed to help me get in a treatment center. This was the the second one. I went to one when I was 21 for a little bit and driving home about a two and a half hour drive. I had no license registration or insurance and a handful of warrants out for my arrest. And I drove home and pulled off the freeway in my parents' city and got pulled over by a police officer about 30 seconds after getting off the freeway. He pulled me over and I knew it was over, but I, by the time he came up to the window, I handed him my expired license. And I said, here you go, man. I have no license, no registration, no insurance. And I don't even know how many warrants I have out for my arrest. There you go, buddy. (laughs) And he kind of appreciated it. And another squad car pulled up, took me to jail. And that was Friday night. You don't see the judge till Monday morning. And Monday morning, judge gave me two options. I remember praying in the car. I remember praying that weekend. And it was different. I I was ready to surrender. I was, I was done. What, what that looked like, I don't, I don't, I didn't know what that looked like. I, I also didn't understand that surrendering when it comes to addiction, you're not surrendering to defeat, you're surrendering to victory. When you surrender, mm-hmm. you're surrendering saying, I'm done with this, I'm going to step into victory. Yeah. And so I was praying those prayers and uh, Monday morning, judge says, I'll give you two options. We can let you go right now. And you got to deal with your new warrants and, or, or your new, you know, these new charges and your old warrants and all the stuff, or we'll send you to jail for two weeks and wipe your slate clean. And I was like, 
you're semi, you know, perplexed, kind of feeling like I'm getting tricked. But I was like, really? Yeah, I'll go to jail for sure. And they sent me to jail. I actually got out like two, three days early. And I was on a, I was on a flight to Seattle, Washington to a treatment center. And everything changed. Got out, got home, moved to San Diego. And my life changed dramatically. That's where my recovery started in San Diego. So that, that, wow. would be, that would be it in a nutshell. What brought me to the beginning of my recovery? What you said about surrendering to victory and not to defeat was awesome. I love that so much. It's so true. Yeah, I didn't know that in the moment. Yeah, I don't think any of us did. <laughs> no, no. It took me a while to realize that. But it is what it is. It, it is the truth. When you're, when you're surrendering, you're, you're not... Surrendering is obviously directly equated to being defeated, which obviously we're defeated, but when you're surrendering, you're surrendering to the victory that, that comes with it. That's such a powerful point. I think also what you said about you don't have to hit a rock bottom. That's something that we talk about. Christy and I didn't have a rock bottom per se as more gray area drinkers who finally decided to get off the merry-go-round, you know, that we were living on. And what you said about it could be a one foot hole or a 100 foot hole is it's powerful. Like, and we each have these like moments where it's like, okay, like I can't keep going anymore in this way, whatever that looks like for each of us. But also it's, and the majority of the, you know, people we work with, the clients that we have are, are similar to that where they haven't experienced that rock bottom. But I think it's been kind of ingrained for all of us that, you know, you have to wait for that rock bottom to then be forced to do something about this. And what we talk a lot about is like, hey, you don't have to wait for that. Like, and, you know, so you don't have to wait till it gets really bad before. And none of us is, you know, none of us is immune to that possibility of, of following into a deeper path because alcohol is a drug. It is addictive. And I mean, it all leads to, to other things I can. So, you know, can you tell us about like, you know, going to rehab and, you know, what did your recovery journey look like or what has it looked like? We, we talk a lot of the, you know, about the stories that keep us stuck and freeing ourselves from, from, from the addictive thinking, so to speak. But I would imagine your story is a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's a great, it's a great point that, that you make. And, you know, what we're talking about the, unfortunately, it seems most people do hit a bad rock bottom just because, you know, we get tricked into thinking that we can actually manage addiction. Uh, but you just, you just don't have to, you just, you really don't. Um, yes, I, you know, one of the things that kept me from stepping into recovery was the unknown. And it was, you know, you get stuck in addiction and well, it's not just me. I was going to say maybe it's me, but I, I've worked with enough people. We, we think oh, I got to figure it out. I'm different. I'm, you know, I know what I'm doing. Everything's okay. And you're just like blind, blind to reality, completely blind to it. And I, when, when you're that filled with, with pride, uh, you know, consciously or subconsciously, you know, Man, I'm going to have to admit I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm mm -hmm. going to have to admit as and and here's 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 the hilarious part. Everybody else knew that but me. <laughs> Everybody yeah. knew but me. And and so you're you you're hesitating to step in or or fighting it because you're like I'm going to have to really admit here like I'm clueless. Uh, but it, it got bad enough, like I said, and the you know, last treatment center, and I just, I began to, so I was, I was good on religion. I didn't want anything to do with that, but I, I knew I'd had some encounters with, with God when I was young that were very real and very powerful. I couldn't have explained what happened perfectly when it happened, especially theologically. I didn't talk to anybody about it for some years, but I, I knew that Jesus was like, he was intriguing to me. I knew like Jesus, he's the way out of this, but that's about it. If you asked me to explain any of the detail, I wouldn't have been able to explain any of it to you. But I, 
Treatment, got home, tied up some loose ends, moved out to San Diego, relapsed one more time while I was out in San Diego for like two or three weeks. And then I, God just kept, he just kept taking care of me. And then finally I I got, I, I moved in with some friends, still friends to this day, an older couple. They, they were, he was like five years into his recovery and she was like six when I moved in with them. And they just loved me and let me live in their house for a very good rent price and uh, just helped me with recovery. And I just started taking it serious. And w- one of the game changers for me, I, I, I convinced myself, I, I told myself, I'm like, look, I'm, I'm good on religion. I'm never doing that again. But this Jesus guy makes sense. Let's on purpose, maybe kind of by default, however we want to look at it, I was like, I'm going to just, I'm going to try like, this Jesus guy makes sense. Let's try Jesus. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm, I'm a huge on this with my clients and still to this day, not a hundred percent of the days, but just about almost every day, get up early and get a morning routine. Get up, I get in the word, I journal, I pray. And I, and I started that uh, immediately. And mm-hmm. I would get up at like five thirty in the morning and I would read, write, pray, and then I would go to a 7 a.m. meeting. And the 7 a.m. meeting was changed my life. And I tell people all the time, I'm like, look, if, if you want to, if, if you're serious about this and you can do it with your, with your time, I recommend early morning meetings. Because it gets you in the right frame of mind immediately. But also what it does is those early morning meetings are filled with people who are serious. Mm-hmm. You, you don't get people who are wandering in to get their court card signed at a 7 a.m. meeting. You're not going to get that at all. And that was my routine. Got up every day, read, write, pray, and go to an early morning meeting. And we go on a journey. You don't get fixed overnight. There's no special prayer you pray and voila. There's no magic pill. There's no, as I'm sure you ladies are familiar with, it's, it's a lot more understanding about it these days, but you know, you, you got to create brand new narrow pathways. You got to create mm-hmm. brand new patterns of thinking. And that mm-hmm. does not just happen with some special snap of the fingers. You got to get to work. Mm-hmm. You don't need to put in like five hours a day of work, but like you got to be intentional doing the work every day. You have to mm-hmm. be. And Slowly but surely, my things just started to to shift. Slowly but but surely, you know, I, early on, probably the first nine months to a year, I was going to like two meetings a day on average. That's what I needed, and I just like threw my threw myself into it, and immediately I started experiencing and realizing Jesus. He is exactly who he says he is. He's, he's not a religious presentation. He's a, it's, it's a relationship and he's, it's a person. Jesus, I, I tell people this, Jesus didn't go to the cross to start a religion. He went to the cross to end religion. And it is about mm-hmm. relationship now. And I, that was always talked about in, in AA. I mean, I'm not always in the context of relationship with Jesus, but it was always talked about, this is a relationship with God. You know, you're the God of your understanding is the terminology. And that made sense to me because I was very much like, nah, I've experienced religion. No, thank you. But relationship makes sense. So I just began to pursue that. And my life just changed very, very fast. He, he just transformed me from the inside out pretty, pretty quickly. About a year, year and a half into my recovery, I started, got into ministry, not on purpose. It was not on purpose at all. Doors started open and speaking and doing all sorts of stuff. And all of a sudden I just found myself in this, you know, I was caught in a whirlwind in, in addiction. Uh, not the kind you want to be in, not the kind of storm you want to be in. But it, even as I'm stepping into recovery and relationship with, with Jesus, it was still like a whirlwind, but it was a whirlwind of, of good. It was a whirlwind of good things. And yeah, my life just changed and it, it, it changed quick. He transformed me from the inside out. I'll, I'll say this too real quick. You know, there's, there's, it's, it's certainly not mandatory that you have to get out, you know, if like, you know, when I was there in Utah, 
I know people who stayed at the same place where they created the mess, were an addiction, stayed in the exact same place, and their life was transformed. Mm-hmm. But I've found it to be extremely beneficial if, if it's possible to get out of those environments, to get out of those familiar places. And moving to San Diego was a, was a huge help for me as well to get out of that very familiar environment that didn't have a lot of good memories attached to it. Yeah. When you were saying the thing about doing the work, I feel like, so I started my journey during the very beginning of lockdown in the UK during COVID. And I feel like the reason that I was able to get where I got to so quickly is because there was nothing else to do. And I became obsessed with like reading everything I could get my hands on, listening to everything I could get my hands on, on how alcohol affects the brain and the body and our health and everything. And and so it's, it's, I have a client this week who, who that is our thing, right? It's, she reports, like, she lets me know as accountability that she's spending at least 20 minutes, like, listening to something or reading something to support that growth. And I think that's, like, so incredibly important to, like, throw the book at this. Like, if you know this is a problem, if you know that this is something that you want to look at, that alcohols or whatever it is is no longer serving you, you know, like, there are so many resources out there. And throw the book at it because the more you learn and empower yourself to know how how it's actually affecting you, the less that you're going to want to do the thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's really good. I mean, obviously, we're naturally become addicted to things. We're more of an addictive uh, predisposition, and I just became addicted to to God. I just became addicted to you know, helping and being plugged in. And yeah, he, he, he changed me from the inside out. That's for sure. I love that. I love that you highlight too the importance. I think this is like just common denominator stuff when going on this journey, whatever journey it is for anybody that, you know, could look differently, just creating new rhythms and having those rhythms and how that cha- I mean, how that changes your thinking and how that, cha- that sets your mind on, you know, uh, what is going to help you, the new rhythm, the power of community, the power of surrounding yourself with the people who are also maybe in the work, doing the same kind of work as you or a little bit further ahead on the path, whether through a coach or a coaching group. That's what I, you know, like in maybe meetings too. And I wonder about that, the couple that you're friends with, that you live with in the beginning, are are they Jesus followers? I'm curious about their influence. Yeah. So if they do listen to this, they probably wouldn't anyways, they're busy. But if they do listen to this, I love you guys, but they kind of are. Yeah. <laughs> kind of. They 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 go to church and, and went to church, yeah. you know, almost every single Sunday. And and but I but I will say this, their actions they they love and they loved you know so i'll tell you this quick story so i had relapsed uh while i was out there and i went back and did some more research and development and realized it doesn't still didn't work and i had gotten kicked out of where i was staying and everything and i and i called her and i explained to her like you know I was just completely honest with her the whole time. And she's like, oh, I know a place in, in Orange County. And I drove up there and it was just like, it just, it was like a rat hole. It was so dirty. It was so, it was just like, it was the only place that was going to let me in last second, right? For like, and it was the cheapest. And I got there and I jokingly tell people this all the time. There's probably more sober cockroaches there than there were people. Like people there weren't <laughs> even sober. <laughs> so, maybe half. I was there. A week and a half. And she calls me and she says, hey, my, my boyfriend and I are both going to be, they're married now. They were boyfriend, girlfriend at the time. They said, hey, we're going out of town both at the same time for different things. We're going to be out of town for like two weeks. He'll be back after like a week for a day and out of town for another week. And she said, and we need someone to watch our dog and house it for us. Would you want to come house it? And I had to- I had been transparent with her the whole time. She was one of my only friends there. She worked at the last treatment center I went to. It was part of the reason why I went to San Diego. And I told her, I said, I said, you realize I'm like 10 days sober or whatever it was, right? She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. She said, so if you stay sober while we're gone, then when we get back, maybe you can rent a room and, and we can, 
you know, rent our spare room. If you don't, then when we get back, you got to go. And I did stay sober. Still don't know how, because I remember one night I was, was desperately trying to go find weed and I couldn't find weed. In Southern California, I couldn't find <laughs> weed. <laughs> they get back and I began, you know, I was already trying to find a job and everything. And I finally found one and I went to pay him my first month's rent. And they're like, oh, you know what? Just keep it. Start paying next month. And they just, they, they loved me. They really, really, it was, it was the hands and, and feet of, of God in, in my life. I, I lived with them for about two years. And still, I was texting with her last night about my book coming out. They came down and saw us in Florida, like maybe a year and a half ago or something. Yeah, that's why I asked if they were Jesus followers, because I was, I was thinking about how the Lord gives us, you know, puts people in our lives to, to be the hands and feet. And I wondered if that was, I mean, because there really is no other explanation for how that worked, right? Like we so badly want to, like we talked kind of in the beginning, like we have this kind of like prescriptive way, you know, magic pill for how do we do this? But, you know, through God, putting the right people in our, in our way and showing us, showing us love. So, yeah, I just think that is, that, that, that's beautiful. And I think that that is something that, yeah, we get to be for others too. It was a game changer. I wasn't, they got me to go to church. They, after maybe some weeks or a couple months or something. And I just was like, they would go on Sunday mornings, they'd go up to Orange County and go to this meeting. And then they would go to a, a, a church up there. And I was like, no, I'm good. Thank you though. And I just told them that for a while. And then finally they're like, they're like, you know, it's, it's different. You know, you could wear shorts and sandals if you want. And me coming from my, so when you say the word church to me at that time, mm. my thought association is like, dress up and put on a tie, mm-hmm. sit mm-hmm. there and be quiet and obey and follow the da 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 da. And I'm like, so every time it was brought up, I'm like, no, no, thank you. No, thank you. But they kept, they're like, you know, they went to church and wore sandals and shorts and smoked a cigarette in the parking lot. And I'm like, church. They're like, what? That's church? What? And <laughs> I finally went with them and it just slowly but surely began to chip away at my perspective of what I thought church had to be like. So tell us then further on like how how you wound up like committing your life to Jesus and what did that look like? And was it a slow burn or was it what yeah. Yeah, I don't so I'll probably get myself in trouble here, but I don't care. <laughs> you know, in in American Christianity, I wouldn't say it's just only singular to American Christianity either, but there's this thing like you become a follower of Jesus once you pray the prayer. Right. Right. That's that's your ticket. Yep. In no way, shape, or form am I opposed to that, because Billy Billy Graham is the one that mainly came up with that and unleashed that. I don't think it's unbiblical, but that prayer isn't in the Bible. Right. That we make people it's nowhere in there. It does say confess with your or uh, believe in your heart, confess with your mouth. And so I, I don't think the prayer, you just toss it out. But at the same time, like we get this idea, like once you pray the prayer, you punch your ticket. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, dude, I know people who've been praying that prayer for 10 years, their life hasn't changed a bit. So if it's the prayer, then we're missing something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I never prayed. I have now just because like you go to church enough. They, I mean. <laughs> yeah, they did it on Sunday at my church. <laughs> it was like, again, church here we are. It. Our church has the entire congregation do it every single yeah. Sunday. And every like, Sunday, yeah. I'm not sure about that. But anyways, I never prayed that prayer early on. Mm-hmm. It would be like, so when did you get, you know, quote, saved? When, right. when did that? I have no idea. Yeah. I can't tell you the day and time. I don't know. I can tell you the season that I dedicated myself to doing everything I could in my power to begin to follow. And that took place when I moved to San Diego. Mm-hmm. That's when, mm-hmm. maybe in treatment, because I, I, I did begin really to get up early, pray, and, and try. I was no choir boy in treatment, but I did stay sober. But really, when I, when I got to San Diego, I just, this idea, one of the things that, that was a game changer for me is this, you know, you use this, this terminology, born again, right? And it's not inaccurate. That's, that's what takes place. Uh, but if, if you look born again up in the Greek, it can just as accurately, if not accurately, be translated as born from above. And that made way more sense to me 
for some reason. That made way mm-hmm. more sense to me, the spiritual component of, you know, a new life and it comes from above. That clicked and this idea of, of spending time with God, talking with God and praying and whatnot. And there was never a moment where I was like, okay, I'm following Jesus now. Uh, not like yeah. this outward declaration. It just took place in my actions. Mm-hmm. Slowly, and the evidence was my life began yeah. to be transformed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I said that prayer at like 10 years old, right? At vacation Bible school. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but nothing changed until a few years ago. <laughs> That's it. I'm certainly not, you know, I don't think people, having people pray that prayer, I'm not on some crusade to tell them to stop, but we got to start talking about it different. That prayer doesn't mean you are now following Jesus. Right. <laughs> doesn't right. directly equate to that. Our actions. Yeah. Seeing it in our actions is is the evidence of that. And that's what began to take place in my life. Yeah. It's so true. And I I, I can relate to the whole, you know, it's a relationship. It, religion meant one thing and the buttoned up going to church and then doing everything right. And we can do all of that right and still not be, you know, save, so to speak, or be in relation, the relational piece. And yeah, I, I love this conversation because I think it, there's so many parts of it that, yeah, kind of people are waking up to the differences. I know it, it's been a long journey for me. I didn't even realize that like, yeah, anyway, I won't even go into all of that. But how about you tell us about what, what are some of the things that you see now since you've been doing this for almost, you know, 10 years as a coach? What's different now than it was 10 years ago? Or tell us about the, the landscape now. That's a good question. You know, I, I convey, as I'm sure you do, the people you work with, like early on, you're, you just feel like you're fighting to survive almost. You know, like it's just so intense. It's like, oh my gosh, am I ever going to be able to go a day without thinking about not drinking? Like it's just, it's intense. And it, I always tell them like, look, it's not always going to be like this. Mm-hmm. You, you go on yeah. a journey, grow. And the simplest way I would describe that now is that there's no thought and attempt to constantly connect. I got to do that. It's just constant. You just default to talking to God in your head. You just get up and, and do it not in the sense of like, I got to, I, I have to read my Bible today and I have to pray so mm-hmm. I can check the list or whatever. Mm-hmm. You, you do it because you want to, and even on the days I maybe am tired or feel like I don't have time or whatever, you realize quickly that that's that's where life, that's where the life is. Mm-hmm. You know, you realize quickly, and from then to now, well, I mean, it's it's also just been a crazy journey. Like me, even getting into coaching was not. I did not want it. It was not my idea. I didn't set off to be a coach. <laughs> I began working with people early on just to just to help people you know give back it helps us and i would just like spend my day off all day long going down and hanging out with like the homeless and praying with them and help like doing whatever and it wasn't some uh notch on my belt it was just kind of like man this is what i this is what i should be doing you know, mm-hmm. people did this for me. This is what I should be doing. Mm-hmm. So early on, it was the, I have to do this because this is what changed. This is what works. This and, and there's some truth to that. You know, you begin to be told what works and you begin to do it and experience yeah. it. But somewhere along the line, it shifts from, I have to be doing this because this is what keeps me sober. This is what works. This is what da, 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 da. And it gets to a point where that, that's long gone and it just becomes what it is you you do every day it just becomes second nature on a on a daily basis yeah so early on it's you feel like you're fighting for freedom mm-hmm. and now you settle in and uh i gotta you know we gotta be intentional about keeping ourselves in a good place constantly but now most of the recovery work is helping fight for other people mm-hmm. and showing them how to fight the, in ways that work <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So do you work with clients like in conjunction with AA or like on its own or both or how does that work? No, no, I haven't been to an AA meeting unless I was the speaker in like 12 years. Okay. 
I so tell us I, about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I've been to, I, I still am constantly in meetings and the principles and those steps, you know, you know, I hate to break it to some people, but AA didn't invent those. Those are all from the Bible. You study AA's history. It was actually a pastor named Reverend Shoemaker who wrote those and gave them to Bill and Bob. And they simplified them and dumbed them down to make them more understandable. But those principles, AA did not invent those. Uh, I, 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 all that being said, I am still an advocate for AA and tell people to go. Okay. So all that being said, I am in no way, shape, or form against it at all, at all. But at about a, like a year and a half ish, that kind of window of time, I just felt like God kept, was actually the one starting to, <laughs> this always gets people in recovery. Oh. Don't worry. We're, we're, we're totally open to all of this stuff. That's what we're here for. Yeah, I'll, for it. I'm, yep. I'm sure you are. You asked me to explain. I'm just simply saying some <laughs> listeners are like, what is he talking about? No, these are your, no, they're good. They like you already. Go ahead. <laughs> so <laughs> we do spicy here. Yeah. I, 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 I cover this in an entire chapter in my book, but I, I felt like God was telling me, you got to stop going to AA. And I'm like, no, that is not God. What crazy <laughs> thought is that? No. Mm-hmm. And it continued and it continued. And AA forces you to, you know, you don't get tied down and like gun to your head, but like if you're going to submit to that AA's way of doing things, you're forced to accept this identity and these labels. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the tricky part here is that early on, some of it's needed. Like if somebody is, and it depends where someone's at in their addiction too. If somebody's like a gray area drinker, that's different than someone you're pulling out of the gutter who needs vodka to wake up in the morning. It's yeah. like recovery is not one size fits all. It's not like everybody just do this. You have to do it like da 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 da. No, people are in different places, different experiences, different journeys. I say this, the same principles work no matter who you are, period. But those are applied differently in different people's lives because people have different journeys they're in different places. So I just say that to say, like, I got to this point where I just felt like God was saying, like, you know, you're forced, like, I have stinking thinking. I am an alcoholic. I am a problem. I, if I stop going to meetings, I am going to drink. He declared this stuff over you constantly. And when you're constantly declaring that, you're going to believe it. It's going to get ingrained in you. You are going to function that way. And so I just felt like God was saying, you got to, I need, you know, I specifically remember him telling me one time, if you keep going to AA, you're going to put a ceiling. You're going to put a cap on how far you can grow with me. Ooh, because I you love come, that. You come into agreement with limitations. I love it. You constantly are saying, I can't do that I mm-hmm. because I am this. Mm-hmm. I can't. I am mm-hmm. this. So good. And how is it that I can be a new creation mm-hmm. and an alcoholic at the same time? Yep. Mm-hmm. You, you're going to believe one or the other. Or you're going to think you believe both and be very confused. Yep. And sometimes what people think when you're saying that is like, and I stopped going to meetings and I can do this all on my own. No, 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 no. I still am constantly in meetings. I host meetings. They may not be geared specifically around addiction, but it's around Jesus and the presence of God. I'm still mm-hmm. constantly talking to people. I'm still constantly applying the steps and the principles but I had to break free from AA in order for God to do what it is he wanted to do in my thinking and begin to do what it is he wanted to do in my life. Mm-hmm. Understanding, though, that if I try and go out and do it on my own, I'm going to fail miserably. Mm-hmm. I still need community. Mm-hmm. I still need so much of that stuff. But I'm not going to come into agreement with these labels and these identities that are only going to limit me. So I love that. That's one there of the my most favorite ways it's been described from a Christian standpoint. I love it. Well, I appreciate it. And it, I'll tell you this too, it, it's, it was difficult. I fought it for a while when I felt like mm-hmm. God was telling me that because look, I still think there's people, no matter where you're at, like, you know, maybe you used to be a pastor and alcohol took over your life. Like I still say like AA is a very good starting place. Mm-hmm. And it, it is a almost much needed stepping stone. And I, I, it, if I hadn't 
like surrendered myself to AA, so to speak, for the amount of time that I did, I probably wouldn't be sober. So I'm not against it, or like I already said, at all. And some people need that. I needed, I needed that environment. I needed that for my spiritual starting place. Mm-hmm. But it was a stepping stone. It wasn't the dest- It wasn't the end destination. Yeah, yeah. And to be clear, we're not anti it by any stretch either. It's just. No. It- I mean, we've talked about this to our blue in the face. We don't have to go into our opinions. (laughs) Yeah, I still, gosh, I'm thinking of three of my clients, three of the clients I'm working with right now. I I am, you know, I'm telling them like, go to meetings, you know, how many meetings do you get to this week? Just because early on, you're so confused, so discombobulated as to what even reality even is. And you just, you need some structure and foundation and it still serves a, a very powerful purpose. And so still to this day, early on with, with clients, depending upon where they're at, you know, you work, one of my clients is a, is a doctor. She's not stupid, <laughs> uh, yeah. but she also wasn't drinking herself to death. She just had a problem and she's not going to AA meetings every single day, you know, mm-hmm. but she, she checks in with like some online meetings sometimes and, and has some other things that she's doing. She's doing fantastic for months now. Other people, it's like, you know, if they don't, if they're not constantly accountable and in some bit of structure, they're going to spend their weekends guzzling vodka. And so people are just in different places. The spirituality in AA, if you think that's the end all be all of what God has to offer, I would like to extend an invitation to you to go on a deeper journey. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's good. Hopefully that ruffled some people's feathers in a good way and mm-hmm. maybe it brought a little bit of clarity to some others who are maybe in a similar spot. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's good. We're advocates of like finding what works for you. There is yeah. no one, you know, one size fits all approach. For me, AA, as long as I thought that AA is what I had to do and that, but yet I had to wait for my rock bottom to happen so that I could qualify for AA or rehab or something, and then I'd be forced to go, and then I'd be able to actually do something about it. That kept me stuck in my, you know, wanting to drink, not wanting to drink cycle, you know, for for a while. But um, yeah, so we're just advocates of like you, like thinking, you know, you get to choose that, and and also, you know, I keep probably coming back to this too much, but so much of what you're saying, like about, you know, just attending attending meetings. You know, what we would say is it's, again, those rhythms and the community piece that are so helpful. What do those meetings have? They have rhythms that you're, you know, you're surrounding yourself with the people and, and creating new rhythms. And that is something that I think whether you call it meetings or you call it group coaching or you call it, you know, just yeah. Yeah. putting yourself around the people who are going to keep pointing you back to Jesus. You know, I mean, there's so much value in that. And it may take trying different ways of doing it, but try, we always say try differently. Try differently than what you've been doing has not been working. So try something differently and be open to it and see if it works or it doesn't. So I think that's something that I love the perspective that you bring because it's not, I mean, I assumed that AA was in recovery. I, I made the wrong assumption that it was absolutely AA kind of interrelated. And it sounds like that was a starting point for you, but it has a different, a different recovery has a different meaning now and, and a different way of continuing the dependency, not on the label of alcoholic and AA, but instead dependency on the Lord, totally, totally different. And one continuing in that kind of growth that, that you talk about. I just think it's, there's, there's so many different places I want to go with this, but for the sake of time. I will. Yeah. Tell, yeah. Well, tell us, we're already almost at time. Yeah. Tell us about the book. Yeah. So thanks for letting me, me talk about it. So I actually started writing this book 10 years ago. Wow. And see, yeah. see there's hope for me. I might actually <laughs> I tell you there's hope for you every <laughs> day. <laughs> and my buddy, he's Bray Wyckoff, Kingdom Writers Association, good friend of mine for like, gosh, I've known him 12 years now. He says it's pretty common, maybe not 10 years, but the first book takes a lot of time. Now, I have not been working on this book constantly for 10 years. Yeah. No, I started it. I wrote half the book and then threw everything but the first two chapters away. 
And and then I wouldn't, I remember, gosh, there was probably two or three years I didn't even touch it. For a lot of different reasons, you know, you got to go through your own mental battle to, because in a nutshell, my book is this, it's my story, but I, it's not just me telling my story. I use my story to talk about what is going on in our body physiologically. Mm-hmm. What, what's going on? Like our, our body has natural opioid receptors in it. And when you take the opioids, what it does to them and how the dependency builds up. And I use my stories to talk about what goes on physiologically in our body, both negatively, then what goes on during, you know, when you finally hit that rock bottom and begins to, to transition into recovery. And then also what goes on in our body when we start getting those feel-good chemicals going in our body in a healthy, correct way. So I talk about that throughout the entire book, but I also talk about what's going on spiritually and how it is we get sucked into these lies and how it is the enemy pulls us in and all of a sudden you're stuck in it before you even know what's happening. And mm-hmm. then how do you even get out of it? What does that even look like? Mm-hmm. And so I use my story to talk about a lot of the stuff that's going on in the country and what goes on in our body physiologically and spiritually. And I just use my story to talk about that through the through the entire book. And there's probably more than a couple of people listening that feel like you're called to write a book. And I'll just say this. One of the things I had to get past was like, why is my story important? I've been through some some things, but you know, more than a couple, but I know people who got way crazier stories than I do. Why do I need to tell my story? God just, he just kept encouraging me, you know, gosh, uh, there was so many times during my journey where I hadn't been writing for maybe a year in it or something. I just set it aside and then someone would give me a prophetic word and be like, I just feel like you're supposed to write a book. And I would just constantly would get encouraged throughout the entire thing, all the way to the very end. And my intention with the book is really just not everyone wants to talk about what's really going on in the mind. Not everyone mm-hmm. wants to, and I don't, and, and I'm not calling everyone to be fully transparent because it's dark. It's, it's dark when you're stuck in it, but I'm extremely transparent and talk about exactly what, what's going on in the mind when you're stuck in it, what's going on in the mind when you begin to fight and see that, you know, kind of transition, you know what I mean? And then what begins to go on in the mind, uh, when you begin to really experience some, some real, real freedom and yeah, talk, there's, there's multiple, you know, I heard God's audible voice in my first year of recovery. I share that story is a wild one. Like I'm not following religion. I'm following a God that's alive and well, and there's no way I would have come out of that if it, if it wasn't, if it wasn't for Jesus. But also, what does it look like on our end? We can't force this to happen. It's his work in our lives, but there's a, there's a, there's a posture and there's a participation on our end. And what does it look like mm-hmm. to really partner with God so that he can do what only he can do in our lives? Ooh, that's good. That and, I'll, good. and I'll say this real quick too. So recovering reality, obviously recovering, but that word reality it's obviously the name of my business too, my brand. But if you looked at, so Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. If you look that word truth up in the Greek, it's actually the word reality. So what Jesus was saying mm-hmm. is I'm, I'm the way, I'm the reality and, I, and I'm alive. And so that's, that's where I got the name for my business. Re- recovering truth doesn't really have a ring to it. <laughs> recovering reality though, it's, it's saying the same thing. So that's where I got the name as well. That's that. So good. Is there one small new thing, new action that you would leave listeners with if they've heard your story for the first time, what would you leave them with? Like what encouragement? It's, it's, a, it's a relationship. And yeah. when we're oftentimes, you know, so it would probably be prayer. And what I would say is this, it's a whole new world. Like, okay, let's, let's just call it what it is. It's a little weird that the most important relationship in your life now becomes with an invisible person. Can we just be honest? It's a little mm-hmm. diff- It's a little weird. But even in the natural realm, the way that you would get to know that person is you have to spend time. It doesn't just, you, I can't live off someone else's relationship with whoever, right? Like yeah. I have a, if I, one of my sons, if I never spent any time with him, but I actually thought I could get to know him by just talking to one of my other sons and asking him about him. That's weird. Mm-hmm. I'm never mm-hmm. going to get to know him. 
You have to directly spend time. And that time alone, you don't need to spend two hours a day meditating. If you want to, awesome. I'm not saying don't do it. If you got time, do it. It's amazing. But you have to spend time. Prayer is not just complaining and asking for things. How much time would you spend with a friend if every time they showed up, all they did was complain and ask you for something and then leave? It's asking and it's praying and it's conversing and then it's listening mm-hmm. on our end. So if there's anything I would say is it's a relationship and you get to know people by spending time with them. I love that. So true. I think one of the things too that like drinking did for me, right, is it just completely took me out of that whole idea of waiting for in the stillness and listening. You know, I would still do the like the late night throwaway prayers and 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 over meals with the kids, but it was it was it wasn't ever spending the quality time and it wasn't ever listening. So I love that. Well, look at me. I actually added to the end of the tiny Tina me. <laughs> I know. That's never I know. happened before. This is crazy. That's good. That's good. Um, yeah, I was I was real good at praying in my when the handcuffs went on when when the when the jail door closed. I, my prayer life got real good. I would start praying yeah. immediately. But when you start praying regularly, it'll stop you from going to those places. Yeah, so good. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you? And we'll yeah. obviously link everything in the notes as well. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. Yeah, so Recovering Reality, at Recovering Reality on Instagram, pretty active on their website, recoveringreality.com. The YouTube's the same, Recovering Reality. Facebook is just my name, Eric Fredrickson. Where can they get the book? The book will be out on Amazon. Sent me an email this morning. So it's going to be available at 8 p.m. on the 23rd. So exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So cool. It's happening. Yes. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. It's awesome what you ladies are doing. It's a privilege. Thank you for, for having me on. Let me rant. <laughs> we love no. that. Yeah. Like, yeah. We're so lucky that we get to to hear all that you had to say and there's so much wisdom through your through your experience and through your relationship with Jesus obviously that's where our greatest wisdom comes from so yeah yeah i appreciate it if if you knew me before you would know it's definitely the work of god cuz <laughs> this 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 ain't me compared to before yeah yeah i relate to that i do, i do too yeah <laughs> just yeah my b my b my b minus story Maybe, but yeah, I can relate. So thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. You can find all of our episodes at butjesusdrankwine.com and make sure you follow us over on the gram at Love Life Sober with Christy and Mead at I'm Not Sober, I'm Free. To learn more about what we do, you can visit our websites at meadhollandshirley.com and lovelifesober.com. Take a screenshot of this podcast and share it with a friend or two. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't have to worry about missing a single episode. And if you love what we're doing, please leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. This helps more women who are feeling stuck and alone in the overdrinking cycle to find hope and encouragement. Thanks, ladies. We so appreciate you. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.